I ask that you turn in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the seat in front of you, and you can, you can pull from there as well. Today is, is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. I bet you didn't know that. And this is the first Sanctity of Human Life Sunday since the overturn of Roe versus Wade. And so because of that, it would behoove us to thank the Lord for uh, abolishing that, that wicked ruling that was there, and we can praise Him for it. Our text does not directly address the, uh, the evil of abortion, but it does address manslaying or, or murder or unintentional murder as well. And so um, keep that in mind this morning as we, we approach the throne. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we, uh, we ask that we can lift up our voices to you, that you are, are gracious to us even when we are undeserving. Father, we thank you for the sanctity of life, that you have made it abundantly clear that you care about the shedding of blood and how uh, evil it is to, to murder the unborn in the womb. Father, we thank you for your mercy. Uh, we pray for this land. Father, we know that there's much turmoil and much continued work to be done in this area. Father, we ask for the, the churches of this area. Lord, I'd like to lift up Calvary Chapel as they preach the word this morning, that the gospel would go forth and it would be proclaimed to the nations, that our little community of Sierra Vista, including Fort Huachuca and Huachuca City and all these areas, that they would come to a saving knowledge of you and that they would grow in, in, their, in their knowledge of you. Father, I also pray for us this morning as we look at the text of Joshua, that it would speak to our hearts, that we would be transformed and be renewed in our mind as we begin to understand your great providence in your work in the Israelites' lives and the tribes. Father, I pray for me this morning that I would hide behind your cross, that my words would not be prominent, but it would be your word that would speak forth. Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see the wondrous things from your word. And we ask all these things in the beautiful name of Christ and by the power of his spirit. Amen. Our, our, our text this morning is, is about God. God as a refuge, God who provides preservation, and God's faithfulness. And this morning, I want to encourage you to find God as a refuge to be preserved by his means, which are the word in the church, and then to know our God is faithful. And as we look at this text, I had a, a young lady last week come up to me and say, how many times are you going to read all those funny names from Joshua? Because we've been in Joshua for a little while now, and we've gone through all the allotments. And it may sound pretty boring for some of you who are, are visiting us for the, for the first time, but these allotments really say a lot about who God is and his plan for the people of God. And so this morning, we are gonna, we're done with allotments. I just let you know ahead of time. But we are moving into some really fascinating topics in the book of Joshua. And the first one is cities of refuge. And so verse 20 is about, or sorry, chapter 20 is about cities of refuge. And we, we know that God provides refuge, and so we must run to him. That's what the majority of these songs have been covering is to run to God as our refuge. So let's go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 20 and begin in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua. Think about that for a minute. The Lord spoke to Joshua. 
Joshua didn't come up with this on his own. So God, in his own initiative, called Joshua forward and said, this is what we're going to do. Look at verse, two, at verse 2. Tell the Israelites, select your cities of refuge, as I instructed you through Moses, so that a person who kills someone unintentionally or accidentally may flee there. These will be your refuge from the avenger of blood. When someone flees to one of these cities, stands at the entrance of the city gate, and states his case before the elders of that city, they are to bring him into the city and give him a place to live among them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they must not hand the one who committed manslaughter over to him, for he killed his neighbor accidentally and did not hate him beforehand. Verse 6, he is to stay in that city until he stands trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest serving at that time. Then the one who committed manslaughter may return home to his own city from which he fled. So they designated Kadesh in the hill country of Naphtali in Galilee, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kirath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah, across the Jordan east of Jericho. They selected Bezer on the wilderness plateau from Reuben's tribe, Ramoth in Gilead from Gad's tribe, and Golan in Bashan from Manasseh's tribe. These are the cities appointed for all the Israelites and the alien residing among you, among them, so that anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there and not die at the hand of the avenger of blood until he stands before the assembly. This may sound a little odd to you. What is going on here? Well, God is, is a refuge because he has designated cities in Israel. These are Levite cities, by the way, that it doesn't explain that. But these are Levite cities in the country where people who do unintentional manslaughter, um, I think we would call it, um, I guess it's unintentional manslaughter is what we would call it legally. And so this unintentional manslaughter, you are able to flee for your safety because the relative of the person that you accidentally killed could avenge the blood of their relative. And so this is a, a, a place of safety for you to run to. Now, Numbers 35 goes into much more detail about how this works. So I'm just going to barely skim through it, but I just want to make sure you know what happens is you're working in the field. Maybe you're, you're digging a, a hole or you're using a pickaxe. The head of the axe falls off and you, you hit, you strike your, your neighbor with a, a piece of wood, right? If it's with iron, then, then you're, a, you're considered a murderer. But if it's with wood, it's an accident, right? And so God has these laws for the preservation of life. And so you accidentally kill the person you're working next to. What would happen is that person's family could immediately come after you and kill you uh, in order to pay for the blood that was shed. What you would do then is you would go and you would run to one of these near cities, which is a city of refuge. You'd get to the gate and then you would make your case before the high priest or the priests that are there at the time. And you would say, this is what happened. They would listen and they say, okay, this is a case of involuntary manslaughter. This was not intentional. You did not have malice in your heart ahead of time. You may come in. And once you're in, you have to stay in that city of refuge because if you leave, you can be killed by the avenger of blood. And so you have, essentially it's a prison, but also a place of refuge because it keeps the person who accidentally murdered inside uh, for, for a case. And then they would have a court case later on down the road. 
What's interesting is God has a reason why he has such a particular method for dealing with this. And I'm going to read to you Numbers 35, verses 33 through 34. Because God gives his reasoning. He doesn't just do this arbitrarily. In verse 33, he says, Do not defile the land where you live, for bloodshed defiles the land. That's interesting. And there can be no atonement for the land because of the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of the person who shed it. Do not make the land unclean where you live and where I dwell, for I, the Lord, reside among the Israelites. He says, my, my resting place, the place where I dwell, I, I'm going to dwell among you people, but if you continue to shed blood... For no good reason, you are destroying the land. You're defiling the land. And so we get to see behind this curtain who God is. And it's interesting, you don't get this if you don't look at a map, if you just hear these names of these cities, because you don't realize that each of these cities are about 30 miles from anywhere in Israel. So within, wherever you live in Israel, within 30 miles, there is a city of refuge for you. So what would happen is you could take it would take you about a day, right? And for the for the airborne guys, half a day, right? It would take you about a day to get to one of these cities, and so you could get to a city within about a day. And there's six Levite cities for refuge, and it's it's a refuge from the avenger of blood, because atonement must be made with every sin. There must be atonement, and that's what we see here being emphasized. And we as, as modern-day Christians may be saying, okay, well, that's great because that's, that's civil law. That's, the, that's Old Testament civil law. But that doesn't make a lot of sense for us. Well, I would tell you that we have a refuge and a high priest. Let's just look at verse 6 again. The person who, who did the involuntary manslaughter, he is to stay in that city until he stands trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest serving at that time. Did you catch that the first time we read through that? The death of the high priest. The death of the high priest atones for the shed blood. As Christians, we know that, that we also have a high priest. And we have a high priest who, who died for our own atonement. Now, if you're an unbeliever in this room, if you do not know Christ in a saving way, the avenger of blood has you marked. He is going to track you down and put you down. Kind of like we would talk about on deployments. You will be tracked down. So if you do not know Christ, you are under the authority of this avenger of blood. But you have a refuge. There is a place that you can run to for safety and for hope. And as believers, I think sometimes we do what Adam and Eve did that when we get our guilt, we do, this, we do this sin, instead of going to Christ to our refuge and get the coverings that He has given to us, we begin to cover ourselves with our own fig leaves, our own efforts, or we try to deal with the guilt or the shame. And, 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 and to be frank, guys, we're all under the authority of the avenger of blood initially. How many of you have had malice or anger towards someone in your own heart? you ever been mad at somebody? Jesus tells us this, that's like committing murder in our own hearts. 
We are guilty of intentional manslaughter, no less. But the Lord provides a way of escape. And, and Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, really play that out. And uh, I'm just going to read it to you. So listen to this. And of course, I did not bookmark it like a good pastor. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. And that word sympathize means to co-suffer with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Friends, this is the gospel hope that we have. No matter what sin you are you're guilty of, no matter what sin you're clinging to, no matter how far you have been trying to run, go to the city of refuge and you will be saved. Because Christ, the high priest, has already died for your sin. The high priest has now covered your blood, the bloodshed that you have. He has atoned for you. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that comforting? In, in times of our, of our greatest weakness, where we are being tempted on every side, men who are in the military, you know what it's like to be amongst wolves, essentially. There are men who have agendas to make you sin like they sin. They want you to run into sin with them, and they mock you when you do not join in. And we know the struggle that you have. And maybe you have given in. Maybe you have compromised your integrity by turning to some of these wicked things that these men have led you to. Guess what? There's a city of refuge for you too. Run to your great high priest because he can sympathize with us. He lived like us. And because you can have rest, how many here are just weary from a world of exhaustion? Man, we can have rest. And that would be what you would need to do. If you were an involuntary manslayer and you were running, if you did not have a city of refuge, you would continue to run. And so don't run anymore. But next we see that God preserves. The next part of this passage talks about the, pres the preserving character of God. 21, 1 through 42 is all about how God preserves his people. Man, I don't know about you, but... I need to be preserved. And so the way that we're preserved is by the use of his means. So God preserves by spreading his Levites out. And their job is to guard, to teach, and to judge. These Levites have a very important role in the life of Israel. Now remember, there's two tribes that are specifically going to be spread out among the people of Israel because of the prophecy of, of Israel or Jacob. Uh, Jacob prophesied that two sons of his are going to be spread out. Simeon, who was spread out and given allotments within the lands of the other tribes because of their, their wickedness. And then Levi was also quite wicked, but his descendants redeemed themselves by standing with God, with Moses, against the Israelites who were worshiping that false golden calf. And so what we see here is that God now has redeemed the Levites and given them a task. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 8 in chapter 21. The Levite family heads approached the priest Eleazar, Joshua, son of Nun, and the family heads of the Israelite tribes. At Shiloh, in the land of Canaan, 
they told them the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to live in with their pasture lands for our livestock. So the Israelites, by the Lord's command, gave the Levites these cities with their pasture lands from their inheritance. The lot came out for Kohaths, sorry, for the Kohathite clans. The Levites, who were the descendants of the priests Aaron, received 13 cities by lot from the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. The remaining descendants of Kohath received 10 cities by lot from the clans of the tribes of Ephraim, Dan, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Gershon's descendants received 13 cities by lot from the clans of the tribe of Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan. Merari's descendants received 12 cities for their clans from the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Zebulun. The Israelites gave these cities with their pasture lands around them to the Levites by lot, as the Lord had commanded through Moses. So we have this summary statement of each of the tribe or each of the sons of Levi getting their appointed uh, pasture lands and cities. And as we look through this, you're going to see that each tribe is giving up a portion, maybe a, we would say a tithe or a, a portion of their inheritance in order for the Levites to have a place among them. And so I'm going to move us through it. I'm going to go a little fast. I'm not going to dwell too deep on details because it's a lot to cover. But verse 9 says, The Levites gave these cities by name from the tribes of the descendants of Judah and Simeon. So these are Aaron's descendants. These are the descendants of Aaron specifically. To the descendants of Aaron from the, the Kohathite tribes of the Levites, because they received the first lot, they gave them Kirith Arba, Arba, Arba that is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak, which is an, kind of an interesting connection there the father of the giants, with his surrounding pasture lands in the hill country of Judah. But they gave the fields and the settlements of the city to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, as his possession. They gave to the descendants of the priests of Aaron, Hebron, the city of refuge for the one who commits manslaughter with his pasture lands, Libna with his pasture lands, Jatir with his pasture lands, Eshtemoah with his pasture lands, Holon with his pasture lands, Debir with its pasture lands, Ain with its pasture lands, Judah with its pasture lands, and Beth Shemesh with its pasture lands. Nine cities from these two tribes. From the tribe of Benjamin, they gave Gibeon with its pasture lands, Geba with its pasture lands, and Nathoth with its pasture lands, Almon with its pasture lands, four cities. All 13 cities with their pasture lands were for the priests, the descendants of Aaron. What's the repetition that you notice in there? Pasture lands. Because the, peop, the, the Levites need to be able to provide for their own families. So God is, is preserving the, is, the Levites with land for their flocks. All right, and now we have the, Co, the, Coath, the Coath sons, the sons of Coath. Verse 20, the allotted cities for the, to the remaining clans of Coath's descendants who were Levites came from the tribe of Ephraim. The Israelites gave them Shechem, the city of refuge for one who commits manslaughter with its pasture lands in the hill country of Ephraim, Gezer with its pasture lands, Gibzaim with its pasture lands, and Beth Haran with its pasture lands, four cities. From the tribe of Dan, they gave Eltek with its pasture lands, uh, Gibthon with its pasture lands, 
Ajalon with its pasture lands, and Gath-Ramon with its pasture lands, four cities. From the half-tribe of Manasseh, they gave Tanakh with its pasture lands, and Gath-Remnon with its pasture lands, two cities. All ten cities with their pasture lands were for the clans of Koath, other descendants. The Koaths, their, their job um, as, as priests, they were responsible for the ark, the tablecloths, and the candlesticks. So that was their general role. That was their assigned task. Now we have Gershon's descendants. 27 begins with, from the half-tribe of Manasseh, they gave to the descendants of Gershon, who were one of the Levite clans, Golan, the city of refuge for the one who commits manslaughter, with its pasture lands in Bashan, and Beshtera with its pasture lands, two cities. From the tribe of Issachar, they gave Kishion with its pasture lands, Dabarath with its pasture lands, Jarmuth with its pasture lands, and En Ganim with its pasture lands, four cities. From the tribe of Asher, they gave Mishal with its pasture lands, Abdon with its pasture lands, Helkath with its pasture lands, and Rahab with its pasture lands, four cities. From the, tri- from the tribe of Naphtali, they gave Kadesh in Galilee, the city of refuge for one who commits manslaughter with its pasture lands. Hamoth Dor with its pasture lands, and Kartan with its pasture lands, three cities. All 13 cities with their pasture lands were for the Gershonites by their clans. The tribe of Gershon, they were responsible for the general temple duties. So all the general tasks. Uh, It's kind of like red cycle tasking for the Levites, those of you guys who have staff duty uh, today. right? You understand what what this looks like. And so... From among the Levites, they would have tasks. They would have to go into their, um, to, they would have to go to Judah or to where the tabernacle is, and they would have to do their duties, portions of them, each one. Next, we have Merari's. So Merari starts in 34. So from the tribe of Zebulun, they gave to the clans of the descendants of Merari, who were the remaining Levites, Jokneum with his pasture lands, Kartah with his pasture lands, Dimnah with his pasture lands, and Nahalal with his pasture lands, four cities. From the tribe of Reuben, they gave Bezer with his pasture lands, Jehazah with his pasture lands, Kedemoth with his pasture lands, and Methoth with his pasture lands, four cities. From the tribe of Gad, they gave Ramoth and Gilead, the city of refuge for the one who commits manslaughter with his pasture lands, Mahanim with his pasture lands, Heshbon with his pasture lands, and Jazar with his pasture lands, four cities in all. All 12 cities were allotted to the clans of Merari's descendants, the remaining Levite clans. Within the Levite possession, there were 48 cities in all with their pasture lands for the Levites. Each of these cities had their own surrounding pasture lands. This was true for all the cities. Remember, Merari's descendants, they were responsible for the materials for the tent of meeting. So whenever they had to move the tent, uh, they had a breakdown party, and they would have to move all this, all the, all the things of the Lord. So, what's the big idea? Like, what is this about? You know, you may be sitting here like, okay, I heard a lot of cities. That's interesting. Forty-eight of them. Well, the big idea is that God knows that each generation needs government and preservation by the word. Each each um, each tribe needs. Government and preservation by the word. They need the word of the living God dwelling among them. The Israelites, the the, the Levites, their job was to keep 
the word. They were to, to be educated in the things of God. And not only that, but every year they would have to spend time in Jerusalem or wherever the tabernacle is, where the temple is, and they would spend time with other Levites and priests and they would study the word together. They would sing the songs. They would be before the face of God. And so they would always have to be holy. They would always have to be set apart. They'd all have to be sanctified in order to approach God. And then they would come home and that preservation effect should happen amongst the tribes that they're stationed with. Uh, and if you think about it, back in the day before there was refrigeration, we would do the same thing with meat. You would, put, you would salt your meat so that it would be preserved. And so the salt would keep the meat from going rotten. And that's what the Levite's job is to do. However, as we approach the book of uh, Judges, we see that that didn't happen, did it? The Levites were neglected. The people no longer provided for the Levites by giving their 10% or their offerings. And at the same time, the Levites were not doing a good job teaching and guarding the word. And so the people did whatever was right in their own eyes. And so what we see here is that God, in his wisdom, designated a spreading, a preservation effect for the people of Israel. And today we have a similar thing. God has a way to preserve us uh, in, our, in our Christian walk. And there's two ways in particular that he does that. First, he gives us his word in written form. We have the words of the living God in written form. And we don't have to be necessarily educated to read it because it's in our own English language for those of us that are English speakers. And so he preserves us by his word. We have access to it. And you guys, we, we know that as Christians, we are among a priesthood of believers. All Christians, all believers are priests. We're designated as priests. Revelation 1.6 tells us that we are designated as a kingdom of priests. You are a priest. And so your responsibility individually is to keep, to guard the word. But not only that, you're supposed to keep it in your own heart, but you're supposed to keep it in your family. And not only are you supposed to keep it in your family, but you're also supposed to keep it in your community. So how do you teach and keep the Word in your own life? Well, we meditate on it. We contemplate it. We carry it with us. We, we are a sense, in, in some way, a conscience to a, a nation that doesn't, like it. It's so funny. I, sometimes I'll get on an airplane and I'll be sitting next to someone and they'll be cussing up a storm and then they'll be like, hey, what do you do? And I'll be like, oh, I'm a pastor. And that their, their mouth zips up for a second. They have to ch turn something off in their brain and then they don't cuss anymore for the rest of the flight, right? Because they feel guilty because they're next to a pastor. And if only they knew my background, they would know that I'm not shocked by their language. But, but there's a, a sense that we are preserving those around us by just being a conscience, a point of contrition for them. But the second way that he does it is by giving us a church with elders who are called to work for your joy. Elders who are called to work for your good. The local church is God, one of God's means of preservation. So I've been thinking a lot about this. You know, when I'm preparing a sermon... I'm in my study, I'm praying over the text, I'm reading the text. Each one of you come to mind as I'm studying. 
And as I'm reading, I'm saying, man, you know who would really benefit from this encouragement? So-and-so. Oh, man, you know who would be challenged by this a little bit? So-and-so. And as I'm reading and I'm studying the text, I'm, I'm looking for application and implications for how to help you grow in your faith. When you listen to someone as, as amazing as John MacArthur or John Piper or any of the Johns out there, right? you listen to them on, on the radio, they don't have you in mind. They are not thinking, let me, let me see this word in light of so-and-so's struggles. And so the local church is a means of preservation. Because when I'm preparing the word, as I'm preparing to preach, I'm thinking about you individually, you specifically, knowing what you're struggling with. So he gives us the church with elders who are called to work for your good. And, and part of your responsibility in this is to come to the, to, the, to the preaching of the word with expectation. How can I be preserved by the word? How can this help me understand my struggle better? What do you think Pastor Matt has been praying about over this whole week? You know, and I'll tell you, I lose sleep over many of you in this room. There have been times when I've woken up in the middle of the night and I've been praying for you individually by name. No other TV preacher can do that. That's what I do for you. And that's what our elders are doing for you. We are praying for you specifically. And so it's so important to be part of a local church, even if you're here for a short time, and I'm not... I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty, but we want to be part of a local church to be known and to know one another. And this is so important, and you cannot get that anywhere else. So God preserves us by His Word and by His church. And these are two really important aspects of what God does. Finally, God is faithful. We learn a lot about how faithful God is in verses 43 through 45. And the main thrust of this is that you can trust him. He is faithful, which means that you can trust him. Look at verse 43 with me. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it, settled there. 44, the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all he had sworn to their ancestors. None of their enemies were able to stand against them, for the Lord handed over all their enemies to them. And verse 45 is probably my favorite verse in all of Joshua. This is probably the heartbeat of the book of Joshua. This is the, the target. 45, none of the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. Everything was fulfilled. If you read this in the original language, the word promises comes out like three or four times just in this one little section. Promises, the promise that God had promised has been promised has been fulfilled. Something like that would be a, a semi-literal translation, right? And so what we see is that God's promises come true. And a testimony of that is right here. So when we read through these names, when we read through the tribal allotments, what we're doing is we're reciting the accomplishment of God's promises, right? That song, Count Your Blessings, Name Them One by One. That is what we're doing. Now, it may not mean a significant amount to us in modern-day America because we don't recognize the connection, but this is God fulfilling His promises, which means that God will always do what? Keep His promises. I like how one commentator says, only when we see the barriers Yahweh smashes in order to fulfill His word, only when we see His promises trampling all apparent obstacles in its way, 
Only then will we appreciate how tenacious our God's fidelity is to his promise and his people. That's a really fancy way of saying God smashes all barriers to his accomplishment of his promises. God is faithful. As we look at this 45, none of the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. Everything was fulfilled. What a powerful summary of God's faithfulness. God fulfilled what he promised. The promise to Abraham and his barren wife, Sarah, they had children. Then it's traced through Isaac and Jacob to Moses to Joshua, and it's finally fulfilled. Nothing has failed. Our God is unfailing, which means that we can trust. We can trust when it doesn't look like things are going to go our way. We, we, can, we can trust when we cannot see what God is doing in the moment. We can trust because God has fulfilled His promises over and over and over again. So in conclusion, I want to encourage you to find God as a refuge, to be preserved by His means. And what are His means, church? The Word and what? The church. And know our God is what? Faithful. He is sovereign. I like that too. He is faithful. Rest in this reality this week. This week I want you to rest in this reality that our God provides refuge, that our God preserves, and that our God is faithful. Can you commit to doing that this week? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord God, as we meditate on the fact that you provide refuge, that you are a safe place for us in times of need, that the world can storm against us, but we have hope in you and you alone because of the shed blood of Christ. Father, we thank you for this refuge. Lord, we know that you preserve us. You preserve us by the, the word and you preserve us by the church. Father, the one thing that you have promised to build is your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Father, this is the one institution that will never be destroyed in our time. Father, the, the government may collapse. The, the economic system may go head over heels. Yet we know the church will remain because of your faithfulness, Lord. And we thank you for your faithfulness. Father, if there's anyone in this room does not, that does not trust in your faithfulness, I pray that you would strengthen them, that they may be able to trust in your faithful promises, that you will never leave us or forsake us, that, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, and the list continues. You have promised so much to us, to us believers. Lord, we ask these things in your precious and holy name of, of, of your dear Son, of Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.